0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and non-fiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected every country around the world in a manner not seen since the great financial crisis of 2008, and is perhaps one of the most transformative events in decades. Most countries and governments have played catch-up to the pandemic, trying to get a handle on case numbers after an explosive increase. But a few places—Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea, New Zealand, Australia, Vietnam, and China—appear to have kept the virus largely under control. Confronting COVID-19, a strategic playbook for leaders and decision-makers by Devadas Krishnadas, is one of the first attempts to seriously study the public responses to the COVID-19 pandemic as well as plot out some of the possible economic, geopolitical, and social changes that may arise. Mr. Devadas is CEO of the Future Moves Group, with more than 20 years of experience in the public and private sectors. He previously held senior positions in the Singapore government, such as in the Prime Minister's Office, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Community Development, Youth of Sports, and Ministry of Home Affairs. Confronting COVID-19 is his fifth book. Today, Mr. Devadas and I will talk about what policies work to control COVID, how the region will develop, and how business and social operations might change as a result of the pandemic. We'll talk about the importance of having an Asian perspective on COVID-19, and we'll wrap with how recent events since the book's publication affect its conclusions. So, Mr. Devadas, perhaps it's best to start by talking about Singapore's experience with COVID-19. How has the pandemic progressed in Singapore?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much, Nicholas, for having me on your show. It's a real pleasure, and I'm very humbled to uh, be speaking with you and your audience today. In respect to your question, uh, Singaporeans have generally taken COVID-19 in their stride. And that's not to say that that there hasn't been um, social disruption to normal behaviour because of the necessary COVID precautions. But it does mean that there's a strong trust compact between Singaporeans and the government, which has allowed the government to introduce these precautions and for the population to, in the main, uh, comply with them without any particular pushback. But there have been significant impacts in several economic sectors, and notably this would be in hospitality, F&B, tourism, travel, and construction. However, these impacts have been mitigated by strong counter-cyclical fiscal policy measures by the government early on in the crisis. Which have been uh, able to sustain these sectors in terms of sector-specific programs of support, as well as aggregate programs of support, which are more broad-based across the economy. And therefore, what's happened in Singapore is a situation which, uh, where the numbers of infections have actually been higher per capita than most of the regional countries. But largely, this has been a result of infections in The foreign worker population and this is where unfortunately in the case of Singapore there was a very late uh, response to intervene because the foreign workers were concentrated in dormitories and the infection spread very fast but its crisis response to this rapidly rising infection rate was very good and so it was able to bring it under control within a couple of months one of the notable facts about the Singapore situation is that it's at the lowest fatality rate from COVID in the world. Its fatality rate is somewhere in the region of 0.01%. And this is a very remarkable achievement. So while infection rates have been higher than in other countries on a per capita basis, fatality rates have been lower in all cases. So I think these are accomplishments that should not be missed.
0: I would talk a bit more about how the... Um the virus got into uh, the migrant worker dormitories. It seems like the the COVID-19 pandemic has, um, has, has revealed some of the latent inequalities in many of our societies. And it's not just Singapore, of course, Hong Kong as well, where I'm based. Um, we've seen how uh, the virus gets into poor communities. That's obviously been something that's happened around the world. Um, I guess, in what ways do you think COVID-19 has revealed some of these of these inequalities in our, certainly in advanced economies?
1: Well, I think the situation in Singapore is not a question of uh, inequality leading to higher infection rates. It was actually a reflection of what was economic efficiencies in the past of concentrating foreign workers in specialized dormitories, uh, which were clustered together in less populated areas and close to the industrial factories where they were employed. That led to a situation where the infection could spread rapidly. Far more rapidly than intervention was possible. One important consideration in the Singapore case is that the Prime Minister of Singapore came out publicly to speak to the foreign worker population and to their families overseas in a live broadcast very early on in the crisis to assure and guarantee that foreign workers would receive absolutely the same amount, same quality of treatment, and that this treatment would be free. And that they would be taken care of in the same way that Singaporeans were being taken care of, and a very large-scale operation was put in place in order to uh, segregate foreign workers who had infections from those who did not, and to treat them in specialised facilities. And this is one of the reasons why, of some 56,000 foreign workers that received, that were infected, only three have been fatalities, and that's fairly remarkable. And the commitment that the Singapore government made to them and their families was, by all accounts, very reassuring. And therefore, I don't think there was an issue of inequality. In fact, I think there was a large effort to ensure that inequality didn't play a part in um, how the foreign workers were being treated and how locals were being treated.
0: Which is different from, I guess, other other advanced economies, of course, like um, in the United States, where poor communities have been hit very hard by by the COVID-19 Absolutely.
1: But I think that this is, that would be comparing apples and oranges. The United States is a much more complex political system and where most of the public services tend to be financed on a local or provincial government basis. And so if you happen to be living in a poor district, you would have poor public services because your income tax base would be very low. Your local income tax base would be very low. Whereas your municipal income tax base, I would say, would be very low. Whereas if you're living in a rich community, you tend to find that you'd have much much higher quality and much greater availability of public services, including health services. So the inequalities are baked into the American system. And this is a great misfortune because they don't have a national system uh, of uh, public health. They don't have a national system of public services. In fact, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the foremost spokesman on the coronavirus effort in the United States has just recently commented that one of the issues that he takes, um, he's most concerned about is the unevenness in which uh, COVID 19 precautions, COVID 19 uh, vaccination policies are being implemented from state to state instead of having a national norm. And this is creating not only competition between states, people trying to access different services which I deem better or worse, but also different outcomes. And so in the United States, getting a universal policy in place is almost impossible given the embedded and entrenched political and social and economic and income inequality issues.
0: I had one more question about Singapore, and then I think we'll talk globally. Um, it, it seems like forever ago, but in, but in July, Singapore held elections, which were a pretty um, good indication of trying to kind of ensure continuity of government. Of course, Singapore wasn't the only one. I think South Korea also held elections in pandemic conditions. Um, but what was, I guess, how did the Singaporean elections progress under under pandemic under pandemic conditions? How were they conducted? How were they operated?
1: Well, they were conducted in much the same way that uh, normal elections were conducted, as in they were conducted in person. But obviously observing COVID precautions, which meant social distancing, Uh, the electorate was given specific timings to which to appear at the polling station. So unlike in previous elections where they had the entire day from a start to finish in which to choose their time themselves, they were allocated timings. And those who are elderly or with underlying respiratory conditions were prioritised so they would be uh, polling early in the morning before the general population was allowed to vote. But the... The whole exercise went, 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 uh, uh, went through very successfully and I think it demonstrates as long as you're organized, you're systematic, you're coordinated, you're communicating well with the population, you can conduct democratic action and processes even under COVID conditions and do so safely. There was no cluster outbreak, no single case of infection as a result of the polling activities conducted on polling day during the Singapore election of 2020.
0: So from your so from your study of all the uh, of, of of all the countries' kind of public response, what seems to be the package of public policies that succeed in controlling the pandemic?
1: That's an excellent question, and mm-hmm. the first answer is actually the central thesis of the book, which is the quality of governance. And in the book, I treat quality of governance as being the responsibility of more than just government itself; it's also the contribution of academia. And enterprises from the economy and the community. And these have to come together to make an effective policy response uh, to a crisis of, of this kind of nature. So if you get situations where the government introduces policies, but the public doesn't comply with them, it's not going to work. Or if you get a situation where the public is eager to comply, but the government doesn't introduce policies, such as in the United States, where the Trump administration is largely been incoherent in its response at the national level, and Republican states have been generally benign in their response to the COVID issue, despite the evidence of the high fatality rates and the high, high, even higher infection rates. In fact, the United States has the highest infection rate and the highest fatality rate in the world for COVID-19 at this point in time. Despite this, they have not embraced uh, lockdowns. They have not embraced mandatory mask wearing. They have not embraced social distancing. All of these policies which have been shown to be effective in other countries have not been adopted universally across the United States or have not been adopted, even if in policy terms have not been adopted willingly by the population and by enterprises. The problem with this is, of course, it only worsens the situation. So the next time they try to introduce the policy, the situation is much more severe and much less effective. And you have to endure with them for much longer. So the misfortune is not acting earlier on an uh, evidence-based platform or policies leads to a greater difficulty in being able to tackle the crisis further on down the road. So kicking the can down the road and then adopting evidence-based policies tends to have a worse outcome than if you uh, adopt them earlier on and then fine-tune as you go along.
0: Um, It's interesting you talk about the idea of trust in the government and and let's say kind of Social cohesion on that front. Um, One of my observations from a Hong Kong-based perspective is um, is that a lot of Hong Kong people understand and comply with public health directives, despite you know very obvious deep disapproval, if not outright mistrust, among of the city's administration among a sizable share of the population. Um, What do you? I, I guess what explains this kind of divergence? I mean, how important is kind of Social trust and social cohesion when it comes to public health response? And perhaps, how is that separate from trust or approval in a specific political administration?
1: That's another excellent question. It's, it can seem very paradoxical, but actually, it's not that difficult to explain. I think when you have a crisis situation, what matters is the trust that people have in, the, in a confident and competent government response, as opposed to their confidence in the political government or political ideology or political circumstances. What they're looking for is rational behavior. What they're looking for is an effective response. And when they see that, then they are compliant and they are cooperative because it's in their interest to be. And so I think in this Hong Kong situation, as you've, as you've uh, very clearly identified, you have a paradoxical situation where the public has very low trust in the political government, but they generally have Higher trust in the public administration of government. And that's what's been happening. And that's why you get the cooperation and compliance, including, of course, a significant decline to uh, almost zero of the kind of public protests that we saw typified throughout the 2019 experience.
0: So, if you look at kind of all the countries and places that have successfully controlled the pandemic, it looks like you have two tiers. Um, you can probably say that Taiwan and New Zealand have completely controlled the virus with no community spread. China kind of goes back and forth, but Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong, Vietnam, and Korea have sporadic waves, but ultimately get them under control. What do you think kind of separates the very, very top tier from, from or I guess, what separates the excellent from the merely great or good?
1: Well, I think in the case of New Zealand... Uh... Being very small and being very isolated was a of great help to them. Uh, secondly, they are uh, not very urbanized as a country. And so you have urban concentrations in Auckland, in Christchurch, but you have a large part of the population that is actually in agrarian areas or rural areas or disputed small towns. That also helped them very significantly to reduce the transmission speed and effects and spread. I think, secondly, you had a very effective government under the Prime Minister uh, Hearn. And uh, the example of her being able to be very confident and uh, accountable to her people uh, is the fact that they trusted her. And she was upfront whenever there were failings. In one particular situation, after 102 days of no community spread, there was a breach in one of the uh, quarantine facilities. And immediately her response, despite being a left-wing um, politician, was to put the army in control of all the quarantine facilities and put an army general in command of them and make him responsible for ensuring that there were no further breaches and there have been no further breaches. So she was prepared to take measures which ordinarily, from a political point of view, would have seemed asymmetrical to her inclinations. She did so because it was necessary, she wasn't shy about the fact that it was contradictory to her, uh, her political stance. She did so because it was important to restore public trust in the administration. And uh, all of this was done very swiftly and very quickly and very publicly. And so you find that her re-election was not a surprise. And her re- re-election had nothing to do with her being a woman. It had everything to do with her being a decisive, competent leader. In Taiwan, I think you saw a similar situation where it was a confidence uh, in response. It was a rapid response. It was a con- is still a country with, like New Zealand, not too large in terms of population. In any case, with some urban concentrations, but also with a large number of population of the population living out in the rural areas, again, which helped them. But I think their open stance and the cultural ethos of uh, an Asian community to comply with instructions when they make sense and they can see it's in their self-interest, played a strong role not only in the Taiwanese situation but also in Hong Kong, in Vietnam, and in Singapore. I think it's important to note that in Vietnam, Singapore, and have not seen uh, waves as as, uh, has been typified in Western Europe and in the United States. Uh, There's been one wave and then they've been able to bring it under control. South Korea is the exception which has now been experiencing multiple waves. And one of the reasons for that may well be that they opened up their economy and opened up travel prematurely, leading to an opportunity for the virus to re-enter the community. But uh, they've been responding with the same amount of uh, effort as they did with the first waves. And hopefully in their situation, unless the new variant of COVID enters their their situation, Uh, one hopes that they will very soon be able to bring their their infection rates under control again, as they did with the first wave.
0: So much of the public debate around COVID-19 and and the response to it stems from an assumed trade-off between economic vitality and public health controls. I guess, do you think this trade-off exists, or what's the relationship between, again, the economy and public health?
1: Well, let me uh, take your Second question is really the framing question. I think when it comes to economic vitality, there's a retrospective, contemporaneous, and a prospective point of view. Retrospective perspectives matter in the sense that if an economy and if a government has uh, had a strong economy and has practiced good fiscal prudence, then when it enters a crisis, there's enough fiscal space and enough economic resilience to withstand the crisis better and for longer. And this is especially notable in a situation such as Singapore, despite its being 75% trade-weighted and so heavily impacted by declines in aggregate demand, uh, final demand. But nevertheless, it's, it's been able to pull through. It contemporaneous in the sense that having that fiscal space available allows for swift and early response as long as the government has the political will to do so. And in most of these Asian countries, and in the case of New Zealand, Uh, they have had the political will to do so. It's also notable that in most of these countries, they run a centralized form of government rather than a federalized form of government, which makes it easier for them to implement policy universally across the nation, whereas it's much more complicated to do so in countries such as the United States, but to some extent, the United Kingdom. Third, I think these countries also have very rational leaders uh, which look to scientific evidence-based guidance on how to respond to the crisis. It's also important to note that in most of these Asian countries, Vietnam, Singapore, South Korea, Hong Kong, they all had gone through the SARS experience. And so they all had been prepared in terms of having pandemic plans in place, running pandemic drills. So for them, they were not starting from a baseline of no knowledge whatsoever. They had something to start with. They had a plan to trigger. And then they fine-tuned those plans as the evidence of what was different about the coronavirus became more and more evident as the months went by. So I think that also made a significant uh, difference. Prospective, because not all governments are thinking ahead to the post-COVID situation. Most governments are completely preoccupied with trying to cope with the today and the now. But in countries such as Singapore and in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, and also in the case of China, you have enough mental capacity left in government because they've been able to bring their crisis under control to start thinking about post-COVID future and not only how to manage the risk against a potential disease X, which is the next version of a pandemic, which could strike at any time, uh, there's no telling, there's no frequency analysis can tell you when we might face another pandemic or not, but also to identify opportunities for their economy and to put in place plans to reactivate that, those economies and reactivate social activities um, in a way that bring them closer to normalcy as the situation becomes more under control, especially with the vaccine introductions that are expected in
0: 2021. So again, kind of speaking speaking regionally, how do you think And maybe let's just focus on Southeast Asia. How do you think Southeast Asia will be changed by by, by COVID-19 and the economic repercussions? I note that places like Bloomberg are already talking about this current generation being the lockdown generation with many, many economic opportunities lost. But how do you think the region will be be transformed by the pandemic?
1: Well, I don't agree with the Bloomberg analysis uh, at all. I'm actually much more optimistic. Uh, Southeast Asia, particularly the ASEAN countries, have uh, come together to form the ASEAN uh, COVID Relief Fund. They are exchanging information. They are pulling together monies. They are helping each other out with uh, sharing data and uh, best practices. I think it deepens the bonds within the ASEAN community. It also deepens the bonds within the extra ASEAN community, which includes the other North Asian economies, because many of them are also together, working together as members of the Friends of the COVAX Initiative. And Singapore, for instance, has donated $5 million, has contributed uh, research knowledge because we've got our own research facilities here in Singapore working hard at the problem of developing rapid testing kits, but also working towards contributing to vaccine development. So I think all of this strengthens bonds. It also undergirds the argument for multilateralism and for good working relationships within governments during good times and doing difficult times and how that pays off when we face a crisis of this kind of nature, which is global, and doesn't respect borders, doesn't respect race, doesn't respect geographies, doesn't respect ideologies or religion. And I think all the countries in ASEAN, despite their their variances in geography, variances in religions and variances in political systems, recognize that. And in recognizing it, they've come together on the basis of what is in the best interest of all of them, not just some of them. So I'm much more optimistic that ASEAN, with a population total of about 650 million with a pre-COVID GDP uh, aggregate of 2.2 trillion US dollars, is actually going to recover faster than the West. It's going to recover uh, on the basis of uh, multilateral strengthened bonds. And when it does recover, I think it's going to bounce back in a much better uh, way than you would see in most other regions, particularly, say, in Western Europe. Having said that, that doesn't mean that it's going to have a V shaped recovery. I think we must be prepared for a sine wave recovery where you have uh, ups and downs depending on uh, the situation globally rather than just regionally. Because for most of these economies, they're export oriented economies and their markets of export are in the West and also to China. And so what happens in those economies heavily impacts how the economies in Uh, ASEAN uh, uh, do, particularly those which are primary product-based. And so there is an interconnectedness and interdependency in the global system that we have to accept as reality. So no matter how much and how well policy action works domestically and regionally, ultimately recovery is dependent on a global scale of correction rather than just a regional scale of uh, doing things well and right.
0: It's, it's good you noted your, um, your disagreement with the Bloomberg analysis because that, that's a good segue to another one of my questions, which is what do we gain from having a, a wholly Asian perspective on the pandemic as opposed to a Western or even a Western-based in Asia perspective?
1: Well, I think that the first of all is labeling Asian versus Western doesn't do, um, uh, doesn't do credit to anybody and, and can politicize the issue. I think what we need to focus on is on what has worked and what has not worked. And this is evidence-based. And so what has worked is always being able to uh, function on a basis of scientific and evidence-based rational policies, being able to move swiftly to respond to crisis, and importantly, avoiding politicizing crisis. I think one of the major differences you see between the Asian economies and societies and the Western economies and societies, is that the Asian economies and societies have, have avoided politicizing the issue and have approached it from a public health and from an economic crisis point of view and not uh, taken it as an opportunity to divide governments and divide people. Whereas in the United States, notably in the United Kingdom, in some parts of Western Europe, you find that governments, including the incumbents, and the United States is the most obvious example because it's also the loudest mouth example, uh, it's an example of politicizing the crisis, even to the detriment of its well, the well-being of its own people. And I think that's a terrible, terrible indictment of the political leaders both on both sides of the aisle uh, in those systems. And so that's a major takeaway, that politicizing crisis of this nature, especially when people's lives are at stake, is, uh, is, is almost criminal in my view. And uh, it reduces trust in a political system. It reduces trust in the political leaders, and that reduction in trust reduces compliance, reduces um, social cohesion, divides a country, divides uh, a consensus on what's the right thing to do, and also be- creates a toxic breeding ground for conspiracy theories. Um, and this is again an example that where the United States is a class in itself. And uh, unfortunately, they are paying for it with the highest infection rates and highest fatality rates. And the highest infection rates and highest fatality rates tend to be concentrated in particularly those states where the indulgence in conspiracy theories and the reluctance to accept uh, precautionary measures, which are scientific-based, uh, are the most entrenched. And so there's a direct correlation between the two, qual- the two factors that I mentioned.
0: So we, we've talked a lot about big picture uh consequences you know big picture economic big picture geopolitical consequences um but i guess before we before we move on um what about consequences on like on a on a smaller scale you know we're talking businesses societies how might you know business operations or individual behaviors change as a result of the pandemic i know much of the mainstream media focus is on work from home and remote work but what else in your view might change
1: well, I think there are three things that I would say in response to your question. First of all, I think it's all this talk about remote from work, working from home um, as a permanent change is overblown. I think we will return to a degree of normalcy once there's been uh, vaccination at a global level and a degree of herd immunity. I think working remotely will have a high degree of acceptance, but it will not substitute uh, physical working environments. Secondly, I think travel and business travel in particular will recover. Of course, this will take time. I think it will take about two to three years before we reach the kind of pre-COVID norms. If, uh, But, you know, there's an old saying from the 1980s: you can't fax a handshake. And I think that that's still true. Businesses would like to see each other, have face-to-face meetings uh, between business leaders when they're thinking about investing huge amounts of money or making big bets, Uh, on uh, relationships. So I think we will turn to that uh, one situation, the situation permits. Secondly, I think it's important to underscore that uh, digitalization has been really accelerated but was an existing trend that was already going to become apparent and manifest. So it wasn't a creation of COVID. So digitalization uh, was going to be a 2021 defining phenomena anyway. But COVID has actually created an impetus and catalyst for its greater acceptance and adoption, but also created a situation where it's created new business opportunities uh, for, for businesses, particularly for, for delivery businesses, but also creation of new apps and new technology that uh, allows for safer interaction at a distance. And I think that's been a very big positive and that kind of innovation is going to continue because COVID is not going to go away in the next 12 months just because the vaccine has been introduced. I think, thirdly, the greatest impact has actually really been in small businesses and micro-businesses, SMEs, and where the gig economy is concerned. So large enterprises have largely been insulated and, or been able to cope much better with the economic impacts of COVID, but small businesses, micro-SMEs, and gig workers have been the most vulnerable. So in economies such as Singapore, where fiscal policy measures have been put in place to try to help this particular segment, the impacts have been mitigated best. But in economies which have largely left these sectors to be self-reliant, you've seen significant economic degradation in these areas, and particularly for gig workers. They are vulnerability because they don't have support systems, they don't have healthcare, they don't have employee benefits, they don't have employee protections. The whole gig economy phenomena, which was the rave over the last five years, have been shown to be highly vulnerable to these kinds of economic shocks. And so that's something that's going to have to be rethought. And whether that recovers to the level at which it was pre-COVID is an open question. And whether governments introduce mandates which require for some form of support measures to be put in place, perhaps co-finance between the gig worker and the government, also remains to be seen. But maybe necessary in order to be able to revive that kind of phenomena uh, to its full potential, and it certainly had potential uh, pre-COVID, but COVID has ar- arrested that potential significantly.
0: So one one final question on 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 the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, obviously, since you wrote and published your book, it's continued to develop. Um, two events come to mind. Um, the first being that normally successful places like Hong Kong, South Korea, and Australia are battling new waves of the virus. Um, another development seems to be that we appear to be on a more optimistic timeline for vaccines than, than we might have thought four, five, six months ago. How have your conclusions been updated given some of this new information?
1: Well, in my book, I've considered many scenarios, including an early vaccine availability scenario. So to that extent, there's been no real need to update the projections because they're already uh, factored into the book or by the book. But I think one of the things to keep in mind in there, sorry, there's several things to keep in mind about the early vaccine introduction. He said, number one, this is a global pandemic, not a national or regional pandemic or not one confined to advanced economies. And so there are huge logistical hurdles, financing hurdles, and coordination and communication hurdles and cooperation hurdles that have to be jumped over in order to ensure that the vaccines can be distributed and deployed globally from advanced economies to middle-income economies to developing economies to failed states. And so there's a lot that has to be done and negotiated before we get to a point where vaccines start to make a difference at the scale at which the pandemic is operating, which is global. The second issue is that many of these vaccines, and it's a good thing, by the way, that there's more than one vaccine because none of the vaccines are 100% effective. So having a combination of vaccines available does allow for choice and does allow for greater uh, volume of production. Uh, The problem becomes an issue of ensuring that the vaccines stay ahead of the virus. As you can note, the virus is mutating, and the mutations can render the vaccines even less effective than they already are and so it's really important to have managed expectations of the vaccines because even for the countries in which they can be deployed and singapore is one of them which has received its first vaccine batch only last week um, and is prepared to deploy the vaccines from the beginning of the year 2021 even for countries which can deploy the vaccine it might find themselves still vulnerable to the next variant of covid and so the battle is far from from won i think the third issue is that multilateralism has been significantly eroded and undercut by the behaviour of the Trump administration over the last four years, especially over the last six or seven months. It's pulled out of the WHO. It has uh, withdrawn its funding to the WHO. It has dismissed cooperating with uh, international partners. It has prioritised its own population over that of any other country. It's going to take time to rebuild trust. And the United States is impossible a country to ignore. It's not an indispensable nation, as Madeleine Albright once commented, but it is still a very important country. And its its importance has to be restructured and reinserted into the international paradigm. One can only hope and wish uh, President-elect Joe Biden uh, well in his ability to do so because his inc- extraordinary cynicism and skepticism of the United States internationally at this point in
0: time. So... Thanks again to everyone for listening to our interview with Mr. Devadas Krishnadas, author of Confronting COVID-19, A Strategic Playbook for Leaders and Decision Makers. One final question, Mr. Devadas. Um, Where can people find your work, um, both with this book and and elsewhere? Um, And then what's your next project?
1: Well, they can definitely download my uh, digital copy of my book and my previous books uh, from Amazon. Um, for those in the United States, uh, different, depending on the state you're in, they're available physically at Barnes and Noble stores, particularly on the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, and in Singapore, they are available and have all good bookshops uh, uh, physically. But I think the easiest channel is definitely the digital channel. And as I mentioned, they are downloadable from uh, Amazon and from GoGuru.com, as well as from Kinokuniya, uh, which is a Japanese uh, books, chain bookstore. So, uh, that's answered the first question. My next, uh, I intend to publish three books next year. So I'm working with uh, a partner on a book on geopolitics called Fracture, which looks at the major departures between the geopolitics in the post post um, World War II era, the post Cold War era, and the post COVID era, and it's going to be looking at that from a global perspective and prognosticating what it means for countries uh, and economies in terms of having to negotiate their um, yeah, path going forward, and how the, who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers in such an environment, and the reason for why these fractures have occurred. Uh, two other smaller projects are really about uh, military history and uh, strategic intelligence, and I hope that those will come out earlier in the year, in 2021. And... Uh, the one on strategic intelligence is of particular interest because it looks at how countries can be taken by surprise even though they are well-equipped and well-aware of the risk. How come long-tail risks uh, can still make themselves become uh, self-evident and, and in a way that takes governments by surprise and by doing so puts them in a situation of significant compromise? And it posits a theory of, of trying to explain that. So I hope these books are going to be important contributions to and an extension of really the confronting COVID story of the quality of governance and how, why it matters. But hopefully it also looks and explains the, the long-term view, uh, or as the French and our school used to refer to it as the longer durée, the long view of history and uh, helping to use that lens to try to explain and understand what remains for us in the rest of the 21st century
0: sounds like a very busy 2021
1: well i hope so busy is good
0: okay so you can follow me nicholas gordon on twitter at nick r i gordon that's n-i-c-k-r-i-g-o-r-d-o-n you can go to asianreviewofbooks.com to find other reviews essays interviews and excerpts follow on facebook or on twitter at book reviews asia that's reviews plural and you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Ms. Mr. Evadas, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas, for having me on
1: the show. It's been a great pleasure.